<laughs> you will notice there are hymn books spread around. There aren't enough for there to be one hymn book each. They're set out deliberately to be one between two. There are some spare ones at the back for those of you who, where we couldn't lay them out. But please, when the opportunity comes, be a nice sharing person. <laughs> very, very kind. Um, second mechanical uh, announcement is this. Can you please set your phasers to stun? I mean, phones to silent. Uh, and let's think about what we're about to enjoy. Um, be strong, sweet Kate. Monday's child is fair of face. Tuesday's child <laughs> full of grace. And Wednesday's child is full of woe. <laughs> Except, uh, I did ask these speakers if they could to let me know something slightly personal about themselves. I called it a small divulgence. Um, So, to redeem that being full of woe, Kate says, I love knitting, I love drawing, songwriting, script writing. The video arcade game House of the Dead (laughs) 2. Forming community groups, facilitation, laughing, so you're okay, right? The latest Alan Partridge movie... And day trips with my lovely man. Good morning, everyone. Um, I'm delighted to be leading this Wednesday talk, and uh, hopefully, it won't be full of too much woe. Um, I begin by lighting the chalice today to honour a glowing past. Um, and to hope for a bright future, but most of all, to celebrate now. It's the one thing now that we all share. So I celebrate here, now, together. These words, uh, narrated by al-Bukhari, one of the companions of the Prophet Muhammad. The believers, in their mutual mercy, love and compassion, are like a single body. If one part of it feels pain, the rest of the body will join it in staying awake and suffering fever. And to illustrate this, I have a story for all ages. It's by that famous author, Anon. (laughs) A mouse looked through the crack in the wall to see the farmer and his wife open a package. She was devastated to discover it was a mouse trap. Retreating to the farmyard, the mouse proclaimed the warning. There is a mouse trap in the house! There is a mouse trap in the house! (laughs) The chicken, clucked and scratched, raised her head and said, Miss Mouse, I can tell that this is a grave concern to you, but it is of no consequence to me. I cannot be bothered by it. (laughs) The mouse turned to the pig and told him, There is a mouse trap in the house. (laughs) (laughs) The pig 
I am so very sorry, Miss Mouse, but there is nothing I can do about it. But pray. <laughs> the mouse turned to the cow and she said, Well, Miss Mouse, I'm sorry for you, but that's no skin off my nose. <laughs> so the mouse returned to the house, head down, dejected to face the farmer's mousetrap alone. That very night, a sound was heard throughout the house, like the sound of a mousetrap catching its prey. The farmer's wife rushed to see what was caught, and in the darkness she could not see a venomous snake had been caught in the mousetrap. The snake bit the farmer's wife. The farmer rushed her to hospital and she returned home with a fever. Everyone knows that you treat a fever with fresh chicken soup. (laughs) So the farmer took his hatchet to the farmyard for the soup's main ingredient. But the wife's sickness continued. So friends and neighbours came to sit with her around the clock and to feed them... The farmer butchered the pig. (laughs) The farmer's wife did not get well. She died. So many people came for her funeral. The farmer had the cow slaughtered to provide enough meat for all of them. The little mouse looked upon it all from her crack in the wall with great sadness. So the next time you hear someone is facing a problem and you think it doesn't concern you, remember that when one of us is threatened, we are all at risk. We must keep an eye out for each other and make that special encouragement, try to encourage each other. If we, in our society, show mercy, love and compassion to each other, we are like a single body, If one part of the body feels pain, the rest of the body will join in staying awake and suffering fever. Please join me now in singing our hymn, it's 208-208, When Our Heart is in a Holy Place.
as we say goodbye to our young people. Thank you very much, Glenn. Actually, it seems a little strange to be saying goodbye to some of our young people when I'm about to talk about young people. But we found last year that the theme talks were just too boring for some of them. (laughs) Hopefully you won't feel the same way. (laughs) Sorry to tell you that, Katie. The the summer school theme of living at the edge immediately led me to connect with the difficulty that some young people have Um, as they face up in communities but not necessarily part of their communities. I have worked with two very different youth organisations, the World Association of Girl Guides, which celebrated its centenary anniversary um, a couple of years ago, and the Challenge Network, which had its fourth birthday party earlier this year. I was working for the Girl Guides when I first discovered Roslyn Hill Unitarian Chapel, but it was my time at the Challenge uh, that had such a marked effect on my perception of young or younger people. Even at face value, my office at the Challenge was very different to my chapel. At the age of 38, I was probably one of the oldest people in the organisation, I think only the chief executive and the uh, financial director were in their 40s. (coughs) As you can imagine, the office was a very buzzy place, full of people in their early 20s, many of whom were overjoyed at scoring their first job. (coughs) In contrast, my chapel, although well attended, is at the opposite end, end of the age spectrum. Yes, we have a number of families, some of whom are rumoured to house teenagers, but we don't really see a lot of them. But on the whole, like many Unitarian congregations, our members tend to be in their 50s, 60s and beyond. I'm not here to bemoan this fact, although it is a cause cause for concern, I actually appreciated it at a time when I was involved in a stressful job with relentlessly bubbly colleagues. (laughs) It was a true sanctuary to find a community of thoughtful and mature people. In fact, I often daydreamed of the rich conversations that we might have at a tea party which brought together these young and old minds. I never quite managed to pull it off, though. 
I appreciated the chapel experience, perhaps because I was raised by my grandmother as well as my mother in a small village in Somerset of diverse ages. And I realised that I didn't get enough interactions across the generations in my day-to-day life in London, despite my many interests and activities at the time. UK society is divided in many different ways by age, ethnicity, socioeconomic background, and young people are especially vulnerable to this situation, often living at the edge of their communities. They will face disadvantages because of it, and they may not have known any different. If we are not careful, they will grow up thinking that this is the way it's supposed to be. Today, I want to talk to you about some of the ways this divided society manifests itself, and also some of the ways it is being addressed by various organisations. As the school system becomes increasingly segregated, the modern and modern lives mean that children spend less time with older generations. How might we Unitarians help to draw together this divided society? I believe that with our network of congregations and our liberal outlook, we are well placed to draw the edges of our neighbourhoods more closely together. To begin, I've asked Reverend Rob Gregson to read And How Are the Children? It's an excerpt of a speech by Reverend Patrick O'Neill. Patrick currently serves as our minister at Roslyn Hill, and the speech was originally given when he was serving as a minister in America. (coughs) And how are the children? Among the most accomplished and fabled tribes of Africa, no tribe was considered to have warriors more fearsome or more intelligent than the mighty Maasai. It is perhaps surprising then to learn the traditional greeting that passed between Maasai warriors. Kasarian injera, one would always say to another. It means, and how are the children? It is still the traditional greeting among the Maasai, acknowledging the high value that the Maasai always place on their children's well-being. Even warriors with no children of their own would always give the traditional answer, all the children are well. Meaning, of course, that peace and safety prevail, that the priorities of protecting the young, the powerless, are in place. That Maasai society has not forgotten its reasons for being, its proper functions and responsibilities. All the children are well, means that life is good. It means that the daily struggles for existence do not preclude proper caring for their young. I wonder how it might affect our consciousness of our own children's welfare if, in our culture, we took to greeting each other with this daily question, and how are the children? I wonder if we heard that question and passed it along to each other a dozen times a day, if it would begin to make a difference in the reality of how children are thought of or cared about in our own country. 
I wonder if every adult among us, parent and non-parent alike, felt an equal weight for the daily care and protection of all the children in our community, in our town, in our province, in our country. I wonder if we could truly say, without any hesitation, the children are well. Yes, all the children are well. What would it be like if the minister began every worship service by answering the question, and how are the children? If every town leader had to answer the question at the beginning of every meeting, and how are the children? Are they all well? Wouldn't it be interesting to hear their answers? What would it be like? I wonder. We live in a divided society and this disconnection between ages is one symptom. Reverend O'Neill wonders how it might affect our consciousness, the consci- our consciousness of our own children's welfare, if in our culture we took to this greeting, to greet each other with the daily question, and how are the children? And I wonder this too. This attitude could encourage us to look out for every child and young person in our community. It is similar to the West African proverb, it takes a village to raise a child, which is often quoted when discussions about community take place. And I think it is still valid in this context. At my home chapel, where cradle Unitarians are a rarity, Natalie is our secretary on our management board, and she's in her early 20s. She sometimes speaks about the atmosphere and the environment of the chapel, which allowed her to grow and develop our chapel village, if you like. (coughs) Unfortunately, the UK is becoming segregated by increasingly more segregated by income, age and ethnicity. Research published in an OECD report last year showed that UK schools were among the most segregated of the rich countries in the world. How many of us have first-hand experience of this? Think about your own friends. For many of us, our friends not only share similar interests, but they are also alike in age, income and ethnicity. Relationships and networks of contacts are key to social mobility, but half of the UK's poorest children are educated in just 20% of our schools. And researchers predict that by 2050, the UK will be the most ethnically, ethnically diverse country in the Western world. And we can already see this in our nursery schools, where one-third of under-five-year-olds are from an ethnic minority. This makes it even more important for our society to be really good at mixing, at mixing people together from different ethnic backgrounds. Although the divide has a particular impact on the young, they are not the only ones. If you live in a large city or town, it is easy to become disconnected at any age. 
you're, you may become disconnected from people who are just beyond your immediate circle of contacts. If you don't have children, for example, you don't make connections through schools. Or if you don't have a particular special interest or religion that encourages you to have regular contact with a particular group of people, you stay disconnected. We know that loneliness is a common problem, especially for the older generation, and it can lead to mental health and physical problems. I was saddened to discover some research that suggests that five million older people say that the TV is their main companion and that nearly one in ten older people feel cut off from society. However, Age UK challenged this situation by setting up UK Older People Day last October to highlight that older people are making valid and positive contributions towards their communities and they're not just sitting at home watching TV or complaining. Rather, as we know, many are active volunteers making personal and economic contributions to their society. Jill Manthrop, a professor of social work at King's College, supported this. She said, one-fifth of over-80s are active volunteers, but more can be done so that they are not stuck in front of a box in a care home, which can be the most isolating place in the country. We need to make sure that they are part of the community so that they can remain active. The Challenge Network, which was set up to address some of the effects of this divided society, um, was, was set up to address these effects by drawing different groups of people together. Its summer programme is now part of a wider government initi- initiative called National Citizen Service and is specifically dev- designed mm-hmm. to expose groups of 16-year-olds to people that are different from themselves. It it begins by bringing them together into small teams and because they are recruited from many different types of schools, their teammates come from diverse backgrounds with many different religions, ethnicities and socioeconomic statuses represented. Even so, they are all around the age of 16 and most of them have just done their GCSE exams. They still have a lot in common. It is in the second week of the programme that these young people are truly challenged to work with the other, using skills like drama and photography and business enterprise. They work with local community groups, for example, ones uh, ones for adults with learning disabilities or homeless people. One of the founders of the challenge, John Yates, often tells a story of how he first became interested in addressing the problems of divided societies. At the time, he was working in a deprived area of East London called Canning Town, near the Thames Barrier. Over the weekend, he wandered around the area, which was new to him, and he discovered that there was a beautiful park, which had been built as part of the Thames Barrier development, Back at work on Monday, John was chatting to one of his colleagues, a Canning Town Londoner born and bred. 
um, and his colleague asked him what he'd got up to over the weekend. And John said, I went to the Thames Barrier Park. It was fantastic. Have you been? And his colleague just shook his head. And so John thought, well, maybe it's because he doesn't know where it is. So he started trying to kind of give him directions because it was really just a, a short walk away from their office. And his colleague shook his head again. He said, no, I've never been. It's not for the likes of me. In that moment, John was struck by the fact that this man felt he could not enjoy a public park which had been built for the benefit of the whole community and that was just a short walk away. It was one of the things that set John on a path to founding the Challenge Network along with two other founders. His aim was to connect local people together and to get them to experience people who are different from themselves so that they can work together to strengthen their communities. I can remember one team of young people I worked with as a mentor a couple of years ago. We were doing a performance project, and one day we were due to visit an elderly residential home to speak to the residents. The idea was that we would make simple paper puppets with them and talk about their life experiences. And then the young people were going to put on a puppet show the next day for a group of primary school-aged kids. For whatever reason, my team was in a foul mood that morning when we got onto the minibus to go to the home. And although I tried to keep positive and encourage them, inside I was not at all optimistic about the plan. They were complaining that the old people were going to be boring and that the care home would smell weird. (laughs) Of course, in my professional capacity, I was the picture of calm and assurance, reassuring them that uh, they would have a great time. But inside, I wasn't so sure. What if it all went horribly wrong? What if they behaved in that especially tiresome way that gives teenagers a bad name? And as we walked into the care home, I was prepared for the worst. But I needn't have worried. As soon as we entered the lounge area where the residents were ready to greet us, every young person rose to the occasion. They were friendly and charming. One particularly lively boy sat calmly with an elderly gentleman, gradually coaxing a few words from him, or just sitting quietly together. And the two girls with attitude of the group started chatting away to some women in one corner. And when it came to leave, they were full of stories of what Marjorie used to get up to when she was younger. And they incorporated Marjorie's memories into their drama performance the next day. And at the weekend, one of them even went back to visit Marjorie again in the care home. More than anything, this convinced me of the power of intergenerational experiences and taught me something about my own assumptions of young people's behaviour. So next time you see a sullen teenage girl or a grumpy old man, put yourself in their shoes. What would it take to make you smile in that situation?
One of the many young people who visited elderly homes during the programme said that she realised that they all had similar interests. How can we improve the future if we don't understand the past, she said. As well as a range of age groups, having friends of different faiths makes you less susceptible to prejudice or even extremism. But only 12% of non-Muslims have a Muslim friend. This may not be a surprising statistic since only 5% of the UK population identify as Muslim, but I think it is still worth considering. For the last couple of years, the challenge has been running its programme for all female groups of young people in the Midlands. On the face of it, it seems to be dividing society along gender lines. However, the charity decided to take this approach in order to include those Muslim girls who would not be allowed to take part um, if it was a mixed programme. And by making this compromise, they were able to run the programme with the same diversity of religion, ethnicity and socio-economic backgrounds. The programme seeks to redress an imbalance in schools, some of which have become segregated along class lines. Many teachers have expressed their concern over the social divisions between schools, particularly in urban areas. Recently, the Association of Teachers and Lecturers head, Dr Mary Bowsted, warned that too few schools have mixed intakes where children can learn those intangible life skills of aspiration, effort and persistence from (coughs) one another. The effect of unbalanced school intake is toxic for the poorest and most dispossessed, she said. And I would argue it's also toxic for the other end of the scale as well, if you you don't ever come into contact with people who are um, different from yourselves. Segregation of schools by class or ethnicity seems to have evolved for various reasons one of them being the division caused by a conscious decision to have religious schools. Some of you may remember that in 2001, the General Assembly passed a resolution that opposed the expansion of faith schools, and this position was against government policy at the time, which has remained unchanged with the present administration. The resolution stated that the General Assembly affirms the value of education taking place in a multi-faith and non-sectarian environment and gave this as its reason for opposition. And the GA is a member of the Accord Coalition of Organisations which works for inclusive schools in terms of faith involvement. The Accord Coalition states that it unites a a wide range of member groups and individuals who want all state-funded schools to be made open and suitable for all children, regardless of their their or their parents' religious or non-religious beliefs. Accord is concerned that some schools um, do not properly respect the beliefs of their teachers, the parents and their pupils. 
and current legislation allows some schools to discriminate against them on the grounds of religion, which can serve to increase religious segregation, which often acts as a proxy for racial or ethnic segregation as well. It also allows schools to provide a narrow education about the beliefs of others. And together, these ingredients can help to create environments where there is mistrust between groups. Instead, the Accord Coalition wants schools to be engine rooms of cohesiveness, promoting a culture of questioning, respect and a hunger for knowledge. I'm not sure about the whole engine rooms business, but I like the idea of a culture of questioning and a hunger for knowledge. It supports schools that encourage the exploration of values, which I think we all do as Unitarians, where students develop their own identities and their own sense of place in the world. Last month, the Education Secretary made a statement affirming the government's continuing partnership with the Church of England. And in response, the chair of the Accord Coalition, Rabbi Jonathan Romain, said, Despite the positive aspects of church schools, those that select pupils on the basis of faith are not only guilty of discrimination, they also help to fragment society. A tolerant, pluralistic society can only be created by having tolerant, pluralistic schools where children of all backgrounds grow up and interact together, he said. Research last year showed that most faith schools admit fewer than the national average of pupils who receive free school meals... And this level of free school meals is used by the government as a fair measure of deprivation. Sadly, Church of England schools in particular were increasingly serving more affluent families. I must admit, I feel like I don't know enough about the subject of faith schools, but I do find it very interesting, these, these recent developments... I myself went to a, a C of E primary school because it was the, the village school and it was very good. I can't imagine them turning away children on faith, faith grounds, but that's more to do with the lack of, the child, lack of children in the rural area. In larger cities where every parent is fighting for a place at a good school, I'm sure it is very different. And I'd be interested to hear your views on this perhaps in our conversation session this afternoon. Each generation seems to complain that the one that's just rising up is um, not quite up to scratch in some way. But it is clear that if people lack good role models, either within their family, school or social group, not to mention celebrities, it is harder for them to develop positive values and a strong sense of identity and purpose. The programme delivered by the challenge relies on high-quality mentors who each have a responsibility for 12 young people. They are trained to be role models, and I know this because I trained some of them. 
their role is to coach and guide their young people rather than to teach or lecture them. They take part in all the same activities as the young people and they are the first point of contact for their group. This role is critical because the programme is so intense and uh, challenging that the young people need a huge amount of support, especially at the beginning. But there are rewards. One mentor last year, who was also a secondary school teacher, worked out that he had more contact time with his group during the three weeks of the programme than he did with a class in a whole academic year. Knowing that they can have this level of impact on their young people, many teachers and youth workers choose to come back each summer to work on the programme. There are many factors which have made you the person you are today. You are a result of your experiences, the people that you've met, your environment... I'd like you to think back now to your adolescence. Easier for some than for others, I suspect. And to try and remember one particular person who had a positive influence on you. If that's not possible, you might like to think of someone in your life who could have had a better influence on you. What were those positive attributes the positive attributes about that person who made them a role model for you? What were the personal personality traits that you hoped to demonstrate in yourself? What were the values that they passed on to you? Just take a moment to have a think about that now. I invite you to turn to someone near you and just spend a little time sharing um, any of those uh, role models or the positive attributes that you could remember.
much, everyone. Sorry to drag you away from your conversation. Uh, we have a, a, just a, a couple of minutes to hear from one or two people, so if anyone has, who has a, a good role model story, they can sum up in a few sentences. Yes? I form tutor from when I was um, year three to year five as it was, year nine to year eleven as it is now, just to really confuse everybody. When I was 14 to 16, um, we had him in, in the first year and we actually all signed a petition to keep him <laughs> for the next year and then for the next year as well. Um, during those years, I wasn't part of a church group, I wasn't part of any other group, I had very few friends. Um, probably only one or two, so I had no group as such. So, Mr. Finch, or Julian as he now is because he works on the allotment down the road for me, <laughs> <laughs> um, was, was my person that I could talk to. So, I went through a phase of every morning, I would go in and I would think of a really challenging question to put <laughs> um, And bless him, whether he knew or not, how lonely I was, he would take the time and sit just for five minutes after we'd done the register and everything and just talk. Mm-hmm. And, and I will never, ever forget just that giving of time, just mm-hmm. a little bit of time each day mm-hmm. for someone who didn't have anybody else to talk to. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that, Anna. You've reminded me of um, some feedback that we got from our young people on the programme that is exactly as you say, if um, in everyone's busy lives, you don't have time to sit down and talk with your young people, they really appreciated the fact that their mentors had that time. That was kind of part of their role, to sit down with them and, um, and just to hear what was on their mind. So thank you. One of the key purposes of the programme, which was to help young people develop this sense of empathy and understanding through their interactions. Empathy not only between team members from different backgrounds, but also with the community groups of different ages and cultures that they would come into contact with. The Accord Coalition suggests that developing this mutual understanding is the key to the future happiness of our society, And I tend to agree. I'm not about to enter into a huge ethical debate, but I do think it's important not to underestimate the impact of developing these values. In our day-to-day lives, we can come across people who just don't seem to be on the same wavelength as us. Whether this is a colleague who is constantly undermining our work or someone in the supermarket who bashes into your shopping trolley for no apparent reason. As we heard on Monday, um, these common courtesies somehow get lost sometimes. I wonder why that is. As we grow up, we learn our behaviour from those we come into contact with. The wider the range of people, the easier it is for us to understand how they feel and to act appropriately. Whether we have a religious belief or not, our gift to the world is to practice this empathy and compassion in the hope that our behaviour has a a positive impact on others. 
I said at the beginning, um, I believe that Unitarians are well-placed to help this divided society. And I've had first-hand experience of this last year when we ran an intergenerational workshop here at summer school. And some of you will remember that, I'm sure. It was based on Lindy Latham's successful Bright Lights group in Bristol. And so there were 12 of us, a few of you around, um, and we sat inside the yurt, and we were aged between 10 and 70-something. It was, I was remembering at the end of summer school, at the, the last sort of day um, of summer school week, and as one of the workshop leaders, I asked everyone to say what they thought they'd learnt from our time together and what they would be taking home with them. For the adults, it was mostly about new ideas and resources, games and activities, which would help them to run their own intergenerational group at chapel. And for many of the young people, it was the memories of the fun games that we had played or the new activities that we'd learnt to, to do together. And for one participant, it was the feeling of being surrounded by love, And this really did seem to sum up the whole week for us. We had created a community where we had worked together and learnt from each other, whatever our age. In a way, isn't that what we hope society could be like? A community of people of all ages living and working together. And I believe that we can work towards this balance of interactions in our own lives and within our Unitarian congregations. The Bright Lights model is not really so very different from our adult groups, a discussion group, for example, with its opening and closing rituals and the, the theme in the middle, a range of different activities. During the intergenerational group last year, we decided to tell our own version of the well-known heaven and hell story. You know, the one where someone's shown a vision of hell and it's a massive table full of food and nobody's eating because they've got these huge, long, three-foot-long spoons and they can't get them to their mouths. And then they go to heaven and find they've got the same setup, same food, same spoons, but they're feasting away because they're feeding each other. So we divided uh, our group into two smaller groups and we asked them to tell the story in their own way. One of the groups set their story in a school canteen with chips and baked beans (laughs) and chopsticks. The other group decided to bring the story right up to date in another way. I'm sure Danny won't mind me telling you that he portrayed a very (coughs) convincing estate agent (laughs) showing around prospective buyers around the two potential properties, each with a banqueting hall attached. (laughs) And we had fun making long soup spoons, the long soup spoons in the original story, with tablespoons tied to bamboo canes. (laughs) This kind of fun was good for all ages. However, despite the positive welcome this intergenerational approach has received in many congregations, I have experienced the opposite reaction too. When a chapel planned a family service, some of the regulars stayed away. Oh, 
That's not for us, they said. We can just about put up with those children rushing around at tea and coffee time after the service without allowing them to interrupt our peaceful worship on a Sunday morning. You may have strolled along a Mediterranean seafront one evening and seen families of babies, cousins, teenagers, parents and grandparents enjoying the setting sun all walked through a park in Asia and spotted groups of all ages sharing a meal together. Sadly, the transient nature of many people's lives in our own country means that too often family ties are stretched as sons and daughters travel to other cities in search of work. Grandparents no longer live just around the corner. Perhaps they don't even live in the same country as their grandchildren. Some charities and companies have recognised this and have attempted to address it. A pair of mothers in North London realised that their children would benefit from spending time with older people and set up an adopt-a-granny scheme. Um, so the, and the scheme um, benefited um, the children who didn't have easy access to their own grandparents. Some charities for the elderly run similar befriending schemes. And one enterprising American company has even turned it into a money spinner with their rent-a-granny agency (laughs) and the slogan, because you can always trust your grandma. (laughs) What does it take to build a strong community? One starting point is to create memorable experiences. I'm sure we can all think of our own special memories of being in a group working towards a common goal. By now you may already have experienced, uh, had some of those memories forming about your own summer school experience this year. We create memories and they strengthen our relationships as we go along. There is a scientific reason for encouraging good experiences and memories for young people. And it's not just because it's a nice thing to do. (coughs) Many people form their strongest memories around the age of 16 or 17. If you think back to to when you were that age, um, perhaps you can think of some of those special moments. And if you struggle to think of something, perhaps there's even more reason to help young people to form these positive memories at that age. The stronger memories are formed because the frontal lobes of the brain, which are part of the memory centre, where the memory centre is located, is the last part of the brain to mature, often in a person's mid to late 20s. Unfortunately, the frontal lobes are also the first part of the brain to start deteriorating, sometimes as early as the age of 40. So it is good to get these positive memories locked in while you can. Uh, I'd like to invite you to think back now. Um, Perhaps it might help you to just close your eyes. To think back to a time which was memorable for you, a particular event from your adolescence perhaps or when you were in your 20s. Just think about what happened, 
the people around you. Who helped you? Who inspired you? And in the uh, next few moments, we'll have some music, and I invite you to either continue to sit and think, or to write in your notebook, or to talk quietly to your neighbour about your memories.
bring you back now, please. We'll move on to that wonderful music. Thank you, Nick. So we've talked about the the causes and the negative effects of a divided society and how Unitarians might be able to help, as well as as the importance of role models in our own lives and the impact of truly memorable experiences. I'd like to leave you with three ideas, next steps if you like, that you might want to try with your congregation to address this problem. They are developing inclusive activities, connecting with youth organisations and taking part in local activities. Some of you who know me know that I like to set up groups and make things happen, usually the things that I'm interested in. Um, so it's not completely sort of altruistic to the world. It's because I like to do things with other people. And these, um, this is what encourages me to, to suggest to you to develop um, inclusive activities. And these can range from setting up your own intergenerational group like Bright Lights um, to simply finding a passion which might appeal to other people. Incidentally, if you're interested in in bright lights, I'm sure um, Lindy and John and myself can can tell you more, but there will be a resource pack that we're developing which will come out next year with loads of different ideas to help you. I know that there are quite a few knitters at summer school and uh, this first suggestion was inspired by a craft club Special interests like knitting can cut across the generations, especially when it's referred to as the new yoga and Gwyneth Paltrow is spotted doing it, has happened a few years ago. At the beginning of the current knitting revival, I saw a photo of people knitting in a cafe and I decided to set up my own club to knit in my local pub. The group grew and eventually it included a couple of nesting 20-somethings, some stressed-out career-high flyers, who were very difficult to teach, by the way, because they think they know everything already, (laughs) and a lady in her 80s who had a real thing about baby blankets. From guerrilla gardening initiatives, which restore patches of waste ground, to websites like meetup.com, which encourage face-to-face meetings, there are many ways to develop these inclusive activities beyond traditional Sunday services, which bring people together um, with the similar interests, but not necessarily similar backgrounds. Many congregations have buildings that could be used this way, and some already do, so I certainly encourage you to consider this. The next suggestion is to do with connecting with um, youth organisations. As I mentioned, the Challenge Network is part of a wider programme called the National Citizen Service, or NCS for short. NCS is due to be delivered to around 30,000 young people this year. And this means that it's likely that a youth organisation near your congregation may be involved, especially if you live in a city. 
Even if there isn't anything linked to NCS close by, there are bound to be other youth services which are crying out for support. You could... um, I certainly encourage you again to to encourage your congregation to develop a partnership with your local youth charity. And finally, taking part in local activities. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. There are many community-based building initiatives already out there, and some might even be already on your doorstep. One example is the Big Lunch. The Big Lunch was set up by the Eden Project five years ago, and it's all about encouraging neighbours to get together and have lunch on one day in the year. It happened in June this year, and millions of people took part. What's great about it is that they have a a website that allows you to find out who is already organising a big lunch near you, or you could organise your own. By connecting into what is already happening in your community, you can help to build the strength in numbers that they need without feeling like you have to do it all on your own. I've given you some ideas. I love coming up with ideas, it's my thing, but they're just suggestions. And anyone can have ideas. It's actually making them happen that's the hard part. I was struck by a point in Rob's talk when he reminded us that it takes courage for someone to cross our threshold, to come to our Unitarian congregation for the first time. And we must always remember how brave they are in taking that step into a new place. How can we make this step more comfortable for people of all ages? I think we need to talk to them to find out. And John talked about the rather unpredictable Unitarian sat-nav, which we use to navigate our spiritual roadmap. I think this roadmap is really our gift to the adults of the future, so please let's remember to pass it on to them. So hopefully I've given you some food for thought, and perhaps you'll consider how you might be able to help the young people of your neighbourhood and inspire everyone from the very edge to the very middle to work together. Let's have a final hymn, hymn number 42, from the, day, from the light of days remembered. <laughs>